This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. David Gergen was an advisor to Presidents Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and then Clinton. It's pretty rare that people work for presidents from both parties, but he did. And on top of that, he's been a mainstay in American political news media for decades. He's often on CNN, NPR, CBS, and other outlets. His experience gives him a pretty unique perspective on what's happening in the country right now, how our politics have changed specifically in the past few decades, the effects that's created, and where he thinks we need to go from here. As a quick reminder, all of our episodes are taped 100% live. Anyone who wants to can join to ask a question. We host voices from all across the political spectrum. Our one rule is to keep it civil. For a schedule of live events, as well as past episodes, to sign up for our newsletter, which will deliver our best of right to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. Our next episode coming out this Friday will feature Josh Krauschar, the National Journal's managing editor for political coverage. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and give us a rating on whichever streaming service you're using right now. This is a big help as our community grows. It takes literally two seconds. Subscribing will also ensure you don't miss out on Friday with Josh. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. David, let's start out a little bit with your history here. It's fascinating. You worked for these Republican administrations and then went into Bill Clinton's administration as an advisor, which I think is pretty rare. What made you make this switch to work and advise a Democratic president? Sure. <clears throat> Listen, I, I think it's a privilege for any American citizen to work in the White House. And I had the opportunity to work in four, and that I uh, was quadruply blessed in many ways. But when you work there once or twice, you really um, have form an attachment to the office of the presidency itself. It matters whether uh, our, the people who serve in that office are good or not good. We've learned that obviously from the Nixon debacle. Um, we also, but we also see inspiring moments that we saw with FDR or John Kennedy or others. Uh, and my and my own experience has been. I started out as sort of almost a fluke to to work for Richard Nixon. I was a very junior person on his White House staff. Um, and over time, over uh, I, I drifted from there into the Ford administration, and I was invited each time to come work. And frankly, the Republican Party that was running the show at that point was very, very different from the Republican Party of today. I came out of those first three Republican administrations, not quite sure what I was going to do. I was exploring journalism. I was looking at a number of things. Um, and um, Bill Clinton, who had become a friend of mine by that time, I'd gotten to know him through journalism I, when he was governor of Arkansas. And he, we used to get together periodically. We'd become friends. And after he became president, he, he, had, he took a couple of bad tumbles right at the beginning that were so uncharacteristic of who he was. I knew him to be extremely bright able person. When I first met him, he was reading a book on Japanese uh, work circles. Um, and I always found him to be one of the best read, most interesting people I ever met in politics. In any event, when he stumbled, and his administration was really sinking pretty fast for a while, uh, he came to talk to me about it and said, I'd really like to have you come in and work with me. And I said, I, I couldn't stay through the midterm elections. I did not want to be in any election period working for the other side but I would help him in the meantime, you get from here toward the election, the midterms. 
And we agreed upon that as a, as a working uh, proposition. And I say, I guess maybe two years or a year and a half, two years, a little more than a year, year and a half, I guess. I uh, worked uh, um, partly in the White House, partly in the State Department for the, the Secretary of State, Warren Christopher. And I frankly did it because the President of the United States asked me what I would help. And um, when you get a, when you get an invitation like that, I really believe we owe it to the office. We owe it to the country to stand up and do things. We're not As long as we don't have to take on, you know, the politics hadn't become that dirty yet. It hadn't become that partisan at those times. So we were the World War II generation was much more in charge. And there was a vastly different kind of period. And I, I miss those World War II veterans enormously because I think they were so good at our politics. But anyway, I went in for a while. Uh, I got some scars from it, but it was it was a good experience. And I would, I would like to think that um, Clinton stabilized and he got back on his feet. Uh, the secret to that, a secret to any president who gets in trouble, is not to try to make them something, somebody they're not. You can't sort of change somebody overnight. What you can do is bring out the best of the people who get elected and work for bringing that best out. When I first went in, every time he gave a talk or was some public event, he turned to me afterwards and said, how did I do? How did I do? And instead of telling him, you've got to be this, you've got to be that, I said, Mr. Quick, and this particular thing, and that's the Bill Clinton I know and respect. You ought to do more of that. And so it was a good relationship. And uh, in the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm proud for working with Bill Clinton. Uh, just as I was proud to work for Ronald Reagan. I think Reagan was a better uh, leader, uh, but Clinton was a hell of a lot of fun to work with uh, for the most part, and I had a lot of respect for him. I doubt that many people in today's political climate would do what you just described because it would probably be the end of their political career as they know it. And and our people are legitimately worried, uh, David, Mr. Gergen, about how divided our country is. You, you see it everywhere. You see it in the news. People are even talking about civil war. Before we get into the United States, though, for us, what type of indicators should we be aware of? Should we look at uh, for determining if a country is actually on the precipice of collapse due to internal factors? I think there are various measurements that uh, point to increasing authoritarianism versus increasing liberalism or freedom. Uh, they're often uh, compiled by the, what's called the Freedom House in New York, which tests every year how we're doing internationally on authoritarianism versus versus uh, free societies. And what we see is for the last 14 to 15 years, every year, every single year, we have seen a decline, a further decline um, in freedom. Uh, and, you know, what, what does that look like? It means the press has, is less free, that there's more clamping down on people uh, who work in the press. Any critics, you know, they tend to be you know, jailed. They can be tortured. All sorts of terrible things can happen. The number of journalists who've been killed in recent years has gone way up. It's a much more dangerous situation. A lot of newsrooms have to be very careful before they send their, their journalists overseas because it's so damn dangerous in some of these countries. Um, so that's one one big thing. Another thing is what what happens in the courts. Uh, do you have uh, uh, courtroom situations in which there's tr a true justice, or are they kangaroo courts? Um, so that's a very very important uh, ingredient. Uh, what is happening around the person who is in charge? Uh, do they start arresting the you know like Stalinesque kind of purges of the people around them periodically just to keep things 
you know, to keep power in their own hands. Their, their freedom of religion becomes extremely important if people do that. And, and so there, are, there are a number of, of, of measurements that one can take uh, to, to say whether you're heading toward greater danger or, or not. But what we do know is in the last 15 years, there has been a considerable movement toward uh, the, the destruction of freedom in countries all over the world. And, and that's what's becoming um, increasingly dangerous. Uh, it's not that the only danger, but they're connected. What's going on, and I'd like to come back to Ukraine, for example, uh, but what's going on with the Chinese and all these things, they, they add up and you can see patterns. And the pattern right now is not encouraging, unfortunately. And I think that we need to be very frank about that and we need to begin working much more um, assiduously on how do we how do we increase and improve the civic life of our own society? Uh, we're, a lot of our hope rests upon coming generations, and that's the book I've been working on about how important it is for these rising generations in America uh, to improve our civil life, civic life, and for and we're going to be increasingly dependent upon rising generations for their leadership and for their service. And we ought to be working on that now so that we have people who are equipped uh, to, to bring us into a better place than we are now. We need to get away from, if I may say so, um, obsessing about our disagreements over the past to beginning to unite on what our vision is for the future. And if we obsess on the past, we're going to lose the future. And we just need to be very clear-headed about that. You just listed out a bunch of different indicators that we could look at. People say that the guardrails of democracy held, and we will get into what they're referring to specifically a little bit later, but the courts, for example, recently held. On the other side of things, what are some of the biggest indicators that you're looking at in America that give you pause for concern that we may be heading down that bleak path where we can't really turn back? I think it's pretty obvious. One of the biggest uh, indicators uh, that should it should cause everyone concern. Um, it comes out of the uh, the survey industry, the polling industry, and I would refer in particular to the Edelman um, the company. One of the questions that Edelman has found a real striking change in is how much people how much people trust the institutions by which they're governed, the institutions of their own society, and the trust levels uh, all over the world especially among democratic nations, among democratic nations, trust levels are going down, down, down. Uh, Edelman just went to, to uh, report into the World Economic Forum that just that uh, was done uh, virtually here in the last 10 days, reported yet another fall uh, in uh, trust for institutions. At the same time, in the Edelman surveys, what they're finding is in the more authoritarian countries, trust levels are going up. And that is a warning sign. So that, that's one of the main indicators that, that I look at, that I think most people look at who are serious about this. Um, and then there, there are others of the kind I, I just rattled off. I don't think we're on the verge of a civil war yet, uh, but I do think we're on the verge of some of what could be really a nightmare, catastrophe in our public life. When I was first went to Washington, people tended to think that politics was played within the 40-yard lines. There were very few radicals on either end of the spectrum. You know, Ron Reagan wouldn't put up with a bunch of radicals around him, I can tell you that. But that same thing was obviously true on the left. 
And today we've had, we've taken down those those forty yard line markers, and the game is played all the way into the end zone on each side. Now, and that has, uh, I think, that radicalization on both sides has made people even more distrustful, and they begin to see rivals not as sort of competitors, but they see them as evil. They see them as people who are out to get them, and that is a uh, that's a very serious concern. I the the ultimate. Um, issue right now, in, in my judgment, going back to the book about how democracies die, uh, well, the point um, the, the, made by Ziblatt and Levitsky in that book, they're, they're the co-authors. The point is they make is that you go back in history and you cannot find a multi-ethnic society in which there was a dominant group that was losing power to a subservient group. You can't find any instance in which that was successful. And there was a breakdown in the governments of all those in those societies and all those cases. And what you see is a common pattern, if you look closely enough, is there's a common pattern that people who are in dominant positions in a society don't want to give up power. They don't want to give it up easily. And there, that brings a clash. With regard to nations, that's a danger we now see here at home with American society and the civic society, we have a we have a dominant group called whites. My brothers, my mother, and I did all of these jobs. We did manual labor, fruit picking, paper routes, lawn work, cutting lawns, raking lawns, restaurant work. I'll tell you what's really going on in this whole debate. The Democrats don't really care all that much about these illegal workers. That the inflow of all this cheap immigrant labor hurts Americans. I've got turned down for three jobs because I don't speak Spanish. I have a study that I want to cite right now and actually ask you about this. So there is a research by Robert Paper at UChicago suggests that those who participated in the insurrection were more likely to come from areas that experienced significant declines in non-Hispanic white populations. So that is our background, right? But in addition to that, we have people pointing to the 1960s where there were political assassinations and great unrest. We have people pointing to 1994 and Newt Gingrich. And we have folks like myself pointing to the 2010 Tea Party movement as the beginning of the decline that you are talking about. So I guess it's a two part question. When did this decline begin and what role does racial animosity or racism play in this decline? Sure. Racism plays a significant role in it. I think as a broad generalization about American history and sort of 20th century American history is that we had, heading into the 1930s, we had a nation which was forlorn, it was splitting apart. But then we had the years of the 30s and 40s when we had superb democratic leadership called forth by how terrible things were. But we had Roosevelt, FDR coming in in the 30s. And then we had, you know, with Truman, who never, the only president of the 20th century never went to college. But he turned out to be one hell of a good president. And he was a very well-educated man. He was self-educated. 
but he had around him the wise men, as they were called, you know, the Dean Atchison's or the Harrimans of the world. And we were a very well-governed country in the 40s and in the 50s and heading into the 60s. And up until about 1965, there was huge trust in government by the public. People thought things worked, government worked. That's one of the reasons that the Democrats were able to get a lot of legislation passed, because people believed more in government. But the breakdown started in the mid-60s with two things. The first was Vietnam, and the second was Watergate. Both of them were very destructive of trust. I was in the Nixon White House. I worked for Richard Nixon. I went to work every day when people like Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, who were leaders of his group, told me that Richard Nixon was the one who was telling the truth. And Kay Graham, the Washington Post, and Ben Bradley and, and Woodward and Bernstein all were lying up the, you know, through their teeth. And you couldn't believe them. Well, it turned out the people I worked for were lying to us. The cover-up in Watergate worked better inside the White House than anywhere else. And you had then from, from Vietnam, when there was so much lying by the government about how many casualties we had, when it was a whitewash of what was going on and brought on you know, the whole effort to get all the papers out and everything else, the, you know, the Pentagon Papers, that, that's when the decline started. And we have been on a pretty consistent decline since. Back in the early 60s, when we were at our height, uh, about 65 to 70% of the American people said, they trusted government. They trusted the institutions of governance that we had. That, that number has been down in the 20s and 30s at best uh, in, in recent years. So occasionally it gets higher than that. But for 20 plus years, people have said they think we're on the wrong path in this country. And they're, they're very distressed about it. And, and our leaders can't command the kind of respect and support they need to govern. And it's one of the reasons we have such paralysis. Uh, in our government, and so much poison in our government, is that we can't seem to break out of this logjam. Why is that? Why can't we break out of this logjam? It, it seems like Watergate was uh, a very big issue that divided the country, but it, we we somewhat came came back together, and now it seems like we can't. Why, why can't we? Let me just say, what you just pointed about Watergate is very, very important. And that is, we have had challenges to our constitutional democracy in the recent past. Watergate was one of those challenges. And lo and behold, the checks and balances, the guardrails, so to speak, uh, held uh, during Watergate. The courts, Judge Sirica, did his job masterfully, and the courts were seen as a place of fairness, that Nixon was getting a fair shot. The, the press, actually, the journalists were actually, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, in particular, deserve credit for pursuing a story that people didn't think existed, but they got to the truth of it. And between the courts and the journalists, it worked well. The opposition party and the party of the president himself, President Nixon, the Republican, who came down to get him the hell out of there and to get him to resign? It was Republican senators like Barry Goldwater and Howard Baker, uh, you know, telling Mr. President, you got to go. So the guardrails held well in the 60s. And to I, I greatly so far, they've held well in the Trump era. And that is one of the most encouraging, hopeful signs we have is that Trump has not been able to destroy the underlying system. The courts do still work to a point. Not, not in every case, but they're doing pretty well. The journalistic community is, you can't get away with a lot of lying. Everybody knows how Donald Trump lied to us as much as he did. So there are a lot of things that worked that we ought to be appreciative of. And that's, that's the good news. There's a lot of bad news, but there are some things that are hopeful. So I do want to just drive down into 
what I'm concerned about, this January 6th issue, and I want your thoughts on this. January 6th was the insurrection, right? But that was promoted by the big lie about the election, which maybe 50% of the Republican Party believes in. Obviously, there are core issues, right, David, with the media and the way that certain outlets promoted it, social media and the way that they promoted it. But the end result that we have here, and this is kind of embodied by the fake electors that were the scheme to send fake electors to the Electoral College. But that's not what I'm worried about. All over the country, we have these Trump candidates running for secretary of state running for local and state government positions, and they are running on a platform to use the electoral college to subvert the popular will of the vote of the state that they are living in and likely send dual sets of electors. But what I'm worried about, essentially, is an undemocratic authoritarian wing of one party using the antiquated rules of the Electoral College to subvert the will of millions of voters in their states and then stealing an election. So the two part question here is, is that something to be concerned about? And if it is and does happen, will that break the republic? I'm I'm so glad you raised this uh, question. Because we've been, we've in effect, I've been perhaps dancing around too much. The the hard the hard question. When I referred earlier to the great nightmare, that's exactly the nightmare I was trying to describe. And I don't see us going shooting each other. I don't see that's where you know the quote civil war is going to come. I think what you just talked about is where the real danger is, and that is a, the clear subversion of a democracy by people who are in, quite intentionally are lying to us. And they're using disinformation, which is, I think, a problem we haven't yet figured out how to deal with as a society. And it's rampant because it's causing, you know, we have 35 percent of Americans and 65, 70 percent of Republicans believing the, uh, the election, the past election was stolen. You, and then you see what's happening state by state as people prepare for 2024. And what's very obviously coming is a, a well-organized effort state by state by the Republicans. Um, by the radicals in the Republican Party. This isn't all Republicans. There are a lot of Republicans out there, frankly, you know, got, they're just sort of keeping away from all of this if they can. But I think there's a very serious, real danger that when we go to the polls or uh, election day 2024, the, the, the foundation will already be in place. The Republican radicals will be claiming that the thing is likely to be rigged. The only way that the Republican nominee can lose if it's rigged. We have to be prepared for it. They will say to each other, we have, we cannot let them steal yet another election. That's going to be the argument. And they will go in state by state. And we could very easily have a situation where the Democratic nominee wins more votes and is ahead by, say, you know, five percentage points. And yet that with five percentage points, the Republicans have enough to play with that they can make the argument and go to court with, quote, proof uh, that the whole thing has been stolen and that their electors, their fake electors, should be seated uh, by the courts. And that, I think, if that were to happen, and I think I I ask experts who know more about some of this than I do, how big a win does the Democrats need to get in order to avoid having this thing taken from them next time out? And I've been told around 7%. That is a huge barrier 
to Democrats. If they have to get a 7% victory, very, very hard to do, especially after the Biden years. Very, very hard to do. It's likely to be a much, much more closely contested election in which Republican shenanigans can play a much easier role. But I do think that we are not focusing. I think that's where a lot of the press attention today shouldn't necessarily be on the past on January 6th, it ought to be, what are these people going to do to us now? And what are they plotting out? What's going on in the back rooms in Pennsylvania or Georgia or wherever it may be? Um, and I think that's a very, very real danger. In case you haven't noticed, it's hard to trust anything you hear right now. We want to begin tonight by assessing some of the things no doubt you have heard about last week's presidential election. There are conflicting versions of virtually every part of that story. For much of election night, Donald Trump seemed to be leading in a number of key swing states. Then early Wednesday morning, he began to fall behind. On Saturday, the media declared Joe Biden the president-elect. We want our system of government to continue. Whether it does continue, though, depends in part on how we proceed from here. As of tonight, tens of millions of Americans suspect this election was stolen from them. In a democracy, you cannot ignore honest questions from citizens. You can't dismiss them out of hand as crazy or immoral for asking. You can't just cut away from coverage you don't like. You can't simply tell people to accept an outcome. Because force doesn't work in a democracy. That's dictatorship. In a free society, you have to convince the public of your legitimacy. Investigators have recovered a total of nine ballots so far. Not surprising when the DOJ says an overwhelming majority of those ballots were cast for guess who? Donald Trump. We've been talking with you um, with your Harvard hat on. So I'm going to ask you to take that hat off real quick, put it to the side, put on the CNN hat and get into some analysis with me here. In the awful case, in our nightmare scenario that we just laid out, it would potentially go to the House and the House votes by state. So in your political analysis, and we, we know that Kevin McCarthy's feckless and he has a lot of problems. But are there enough good Americans in the U.S. House of Representatives for the Republican caucus to vote country over party and prevent that type of subversion that you just alluded to from ever reaching the courts? One thing to remember in all of this is that if it goes into the House of Representatives, it is not a vote of the body. It's not a vote of individuals within the body. Each state gets one vote. And you you start out with a proposition that Republicans are going to control more state houses than the Democrats are. That almost baked in at this point. Uh, if it goes into the House of Representatives, each state gets one vote. It's probably over for the Democrats. It's probably lights out. I, you know, they, they, they're very, this is what we were facing you know, in the Trump election just earlier with Biden. You know, if they could, if they could just get into the house, they could win the whole thing. Um, so that that again is one of the fears, and I and I, I do think as we're focused on it, to put on the CN hat, the if we're focused on that, we have to realize that the groundwork is being laid this this very year to to deal that kind of defeat to to the Democrats. Um, and I, you know, I haven't been able to understand. I, I can't quite get the passion on the issues. It you know, mostly goes to Democrats in, in our public life, but the passion on who's going to win and who's going to lose is usually on the right. It's on the left. I mean, people and you know, for people on the right, this is a twenty-four-seven proposition. 
for a lot of people on the left, politics is sort of what you do over the weekend. Um, and you know that's something the Democrat, the Democrats are going to have to come to grips with to deal with this. And I frankly think the Republicans ought to. I do think there are Republicans, you know, like the Howard Bakers of the world that we saw before, and the Colin Powells we saw. And Colin was at his height. I do think there where you can go through the Republicans who are outstanding human beings who uh, really played by the rules, but had a different view of capitalism. For example, they were pro-capitalist. Um, and they, and they, the number of other things they, they, you know, they, they disagreed on, but that was a, that was a fair fight. It was a, and a fair struggle. I think it's healthy to have struggles and disagreements and, and, demo, and democracies. Uh, that's what I think the, the strength of the democracy is, but you can't do it if some people are rigging the deck. And, and that is the, the danger that we can so clearly see it's right beneath our noses right now. We are going to go to the audience. Let's start with Rachel first, and then we will go to Paul Goodfellow. Rachel, over to you. Hi, thank you so much, Mr. Gergen, for um, joining us tonight. At Bates College, I took a course on leaders and leadership with uh, then-former governor of Maine, Angus King, and now independent senator from Maine, Angus King, um, during which we read your book, Eyewitness to Power. Um, And it gave me a lot to think about in the context of that class and, and of course, now as we're having an important discussion like this. Um, And I think the the thing that I want to get at here um, is whether you think when we're thinking about leadership and we're also thinking about um, civil discourse or unrest um, or the um, trend toward unrest in this country, whether there's something missing in today's leadership um, that could be incorporated if um, our leaders were to harken back to the lessons learned from prior administrations in this country. Sure. Thank, thank you, Rachel, for your, your question. I'm a big fan of Bates College and uh, especially of Angus King. I think he's exactly the kind of person we'd like to see on either side of the aisle. Then your question about sort of are we missing something? I, I think, Rachel, that we don't pay enough attention to the quality of our civic culture. We pay a lot of attention to sort of individuals and we make them sort of, you know, it, we follow their foibles and we follow their sometimes their victories and then we follow them as they fall on their faces. And it's just sort of a string of it. It's, it's unconnected. Uh, personal stories, um, and I and I think in a in a healthy civic world, there would we would be you know, going all the way back to the Greeks and Romans. There was a real emphasis on on uh, paying homage to and paying respect to, and trying to keep institutions and society well healed and and supportive of each. And I think I think we've lost a lot of that quality to um, spend time with each other and have difficult conversations. I think our best hope for the future is to raise new generations, new generations who are not so burdened by the past and can think more creatively and innovatively and freely about what kind of future we can have together. I think we, it's not just a question of who's up and who's down. It's a question of whether we can all work together. And I think that means, you know, creating something we haven't had for a long time. The last time we had it was with the World War II generation. I love that generation. I came to Washington when they were, you know, they were running things. 
And they had to, whether they were Democrat or Republican, I can just tell you story after story, they, they believed in working together. You know, they, they, they came back from the war. They had fought under the same flag together. And they wanted to work together when they got back here. And we had it. That's the reason I was saying the 50s and 60s, um, there was so much trust and you know, governments was so, um, so much more effective is we had people from the World War II generation who were running things. And we I miss those people now because I can't tell you how many times I think about, uh, God, we only had an Eisenhower around. We only had some of the people, you know, John Kennedy around. Uh, it, we, can, we can get through this. Even uh, John McCain or Bob Dole with that same type of... Absolutely. I mean, you know, and Bob Dole... And, and Dan Inouye, they were, you know, these were two guys who were fighting in Italy. They both got they, both wounded, wound up in the same hospital together uh, during the war. Dole nearly lost his life, but but uh, Phil Hart was in that in that hospital as well. But Dole and Sam Inouye formed a lifelong friendship through that, and they were friends, different sides, different perspectives, but because they'd been in that war together and they came through and lived, to say they both survived. Uh, that's what was true of John McCain. I mean, the fact he survived just changed him. It transformed him, into, and he became a really terrific citizen. John McCain was a hellraiser before he went into the war. And he was very, you know, he was rambunctious as all get out. He almost got kicked out of the academy a lot. But you know, the war transformed him, and just as it did Bob Noel and, and Sam Inouye. Ab, over to you. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, Professor Gergen, for your time. So my question for you, and I, and I believe you alluded to it earlier, um, uh, what, when, when you speak about civic uh, culture, uh, what can be done about this uh, current, uh, very cynical, uh, almost ultra-libertarian uh, view of government as ultimately um, inherently dysfunctional and, 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 and very much you know, not to be trusted? Uh, what can be done about those attitudes that has kind of been something pushed by the right over over many decades now? Um, and how do we undo that to where to, as you said, uh, where people are more invested in, in having more trust in their institutions? Yeah. I think it's going to take a victory by the Democrats somewhere that restores the luster or restores the sense that the Democratic Party can can govern successfully. I, I you know, it's been startling to see how quickly the um, Support for Biden has eroded, and with that support for the party, the Democratic Party has eroded. So you know, so that, you know, Manchin and 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 was uh, was so able to block things given that situation. Um, it, it's it's worth remembering that when Abraham Lincoln had to do something tough, but really, really just and important, was the Emancipation Proclamation, and he he wrote out the Emancipation Proclamation. He got all of his cabinet to agree to it, but then he put it in a drawer and waited. He waited because he needed a victory in the field. He needed a victory in battle to restore confidence in him and his government. And so he waited to, after the Battle of Antietam, uh, and that and that enabled him then to move forward with the with the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. We've got to find some place somewhere along the way here. Uh, somebody or some group or something which is attached to the Democratic Party, which can actually stir people's souls and, and give them a sense of, you know, maybe maybe we can restore this. Maybe we, we can rebuild it. Biden, I think, had a much harder time 
than he should have because uh, he, he didn't have the country wasn't quite prepared to go as far as he wanted to go. I think he I think he, he's a very good hearted man, but I think he overestimated how much change the country truly wanted. What the country wanted was normalcy. They weren't, as, as one member of the freshman class has said, Democrat, they weren't looking for a new FDR. They were looking for somebody who would calm things down, make, make us all feel good about ourselves again. And that hasn't, unfortunately, hasn't happened. Now, he, and, 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 in fairness, he, he deserves more time, but he doesn't have a lot of time. And he needs a victory. I think if he gets a victory, if the, the Democrats in a couple of states, a couple of governors can catch fire. You know, that can happen in a place like California. You get a couple of governors to catch fire with some ways of solving problems. That can stir people again. You know, but we've got to get people out. You know, the country's exhausted. The country's in a very negative place. And it's hard to get anything done by anybody um, under these circumstances. This will pass. That's why we have to be patient. We can get through this, but we've got to steal our nerves. This is going to be a bumpy ride. So, David, my last question, you earlier in our discussion, you not to quote, but to paraphrase, you said when people feel a sense of victimization, they can do really awful things. And what we've noticed from our room right here is at least the people here aren't as divided as they are on Twitter or they are in political campaigns. So my question to you is, what can we do short of having people with different backgrounds directly interact with each other? where we can regain some shared sense of value that we all do have as Americans, but is just being pushed aside due to certain cable news networks, social media, and other things. Is there anything we can do to change this? Uh, well, I have a strong prejudice on this question, Justin. I, I, uh, and that is, I, I go back again in history. I think it teaches us a lot. Uh, when Franklin Roosevelt, was first elected in 1932. He came in, you remember, there was just terrible depression. Unemployment had skyrocketed. People were poor. They were selling apples on the streets. Uh, and he was inaugurated in, in March of 1933. That April, uh, Franklin Roosevelt went to the public and proposed the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was going to be a group of, they were going to offer places for young people, mostly guys, to come work in the woods and the forests and the parks uh, to restore them for a dollar a day. But it would give them something to live by, something, you know, a job, a real job. Um, and he proposed that, in, as I say, in March. By, by that June, we had 250,000 young men, 250,000 young men who were working in the parks and the forests, you know, rebuilding things and whatever. And they bonded together. They worked together. They rebuilt things together, and they came out of that experience. It was it was the most popular program FDR had. People came out of it much closer together because they worked on a project that was a meaningful project to them, and they got a little money for it, and they could subside, they could support a family back home, um, and they could come out of the Kansas and Missouri and, and and really get along. It made a big big difference. Same thing happened in World War II. You had a you had a salt and stall from Massachusetts. You know the elite family of salt and stall. The son would be in the army, saluting some Polish kid from Brooklyn, and that just brought them together because they fought under the same flag, or they were in the woods, with, you know, working for the same purpose. That is, what we have lost that sense of people belonging and paying their dues. 
you know, it, it, it gives you more satisfaction. They weren't looking for handouts. They were looking for a way to support their families and they were willing to work for it. Uh, and that is a very important thing. We need, and I believe we're going to get one day, a program, a robust program of national service. The main thing is for you to have that experience, to, to pitch in for America, to do something for your country, and to, and to take pride in helping others. That's all we have for you today. As a quick reminder, all of our episodes are taped 100% live. Anyone who wants to can join to ask a question. We welcome voices from all across the political spectrum. Our one rule is to keep it civil. For a schedule of live events, as well as past episodes, and to sign up for our newsletter, which will give you our best of delivered right to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. Our next episode coming out this Friday will feature Josh Crowshar, National Journal's Managing Editor for Political Coverage. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and give us a rating on whichever streaming service you're using right now. This is a huge help as our community grows. It takes literally two seconds. And subscribing will also ensure you don't miss out on Friday with Josh. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, Thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.